0: Yo, what's going on, man? How you doing,
1: dude? I'm so excited about the uh, thing that I'm coding right now. Do you subscribe to? You subscribe to every right, like the publication from Nathan Bashas?
0: Yeah, I, I subscribe to it. I love every piece I read, but like, I never actually make time to read the shit that comes. I forward my you inbox. stuff that I think is good, but exactly the
1: last one that I forwarded to you. Remember that one? It was about AI. I was reading mm-hmm. it, and I was like, this is exactly my jam. They were writing about how people are going to start using AI to classify, like, content from their users. Like, if you run, like, a blogging platform, you're going to run it to, like, on your user's blog posts to figure out if they're any good. Or if you run a social media, like a social network, you're going to run it on, like, people's tweets or whatever to see if, like, their posts are any good. And so I have been, like, writing the same code for indie hackers, and I was scrolling down the article reading about it. I was like, okay, I can't wait to like read, you know, I hope they have some tips. And they're like, oh, I got this idea from this tweet. And I looked at the tweet and it was my tweet. It was like my tweet where I was talking <laughs> about using AI to classify spam on any hackers. So you thought so, you were
0: going to you th- you thought you were gonna like learn something from them and then and it ends up being that they learned from you.
1: Yeah, exactly. But I ended up building the classifier. So that's what I've been working on like all, all day. Hey, what's up, Steph? Hi, Welcome.
2: good to see you. Hello. And nice to meet you, Channing. I know we've exchanged emails, but Cortland. Nice to see you again oh, as yeah. well. You guys
1: have never
0: met.
2: No, not in real life. I have
1: this weird twin thing where I assume everybody that I've met, my brother has met.
0: Okay. <laughs> That's not how it works. I feel like I've been like the behind the scenes newsletter, website, content, personality, and you've been the yeah. on the mic dude for a minute.
2: Yeah, but what's yeah. the what's the update? Now you guys have a podcast together? Or you just brought Channing a, on now? I or? got bored
1: of doing the podcast by myself. I was like, mm-hmm. you know it's not fun? Being on the hook to do a podcast for myself every time. I mean, you've got another podcast i think it's like shit you don't learn in school and you have like a co-host and you have a 16z where i think you're constantly interviewing people but like you're always on the hook right i know the
2: feeling yeah and it yeah
1: i don't know how it feels to you but like having a co-host feels way easier and way way better sharing responsibility it's like being a Mm co-parent versus being a single
2: parent no i totally feel you i mean even sometimes you're like I don't know what to ask you next, but I have to like yeah. <laughs> I have to say <laughs> something now. But when there's a second dynamic, sometimes you're like, oh, actually, like I, don't, I don't even have enough time to ask my questions, which is totally okay. But it's just like more entertaining. Great. It's more lively. Yeah. Totally.
1: It forces you to get out your best stuff. Like I started a show with Julian, and that was our whole thesis behind the show. It was the two of us, two co-hosts, and then we would always have two guests. Yeah. So it's always four people, which means like there's never an awkward silence, and then whenever there is a silence like you're not going to go unless you have something really amazing to say because there's three other people who are waiting to
2: talk exactly so I think that's
1: like better for listeners if there's if there's more people
2: yeah are you bringing that back what was it called brains or
1: brains yeah. i don't know <laughs> it's i just gone. don't like i don't <laughs> like having that many i want to do other things yeah when i think about you you've been on the show is this your second or third time on Andy hackers
2: i don't know i know i've been at least once i think, I think it might just be the yeah. second
1: it might be your second you've done god i don't even remember the last time you came on but like you're like a self-taught coder when i first heard about you you're like hey indie hackers like i'm steph smith i learned how to code here's my project and (laughs) the next month you're like here's another project And the next month you're like here's another project and then like a year later you're like ama because you'd built this amazing blog with hundreds of thousands of readers and then like the next thing i knew you were like basically running the trends Mm -hmm. publication for the hustle and you had grown that to like millions of dollars in revenue and then i saw you at HustleCon. i went to talk there and you're like running that too and now you're like running a16z's podcast so you're just like you went from like i've never even heard of this person to like well she's like on top she's like running like the one of the biggest podcasts in tech to just like an awesome sort of media personality writer content creator and indie hacker and coder so I feel like you've done a huge variety of things.
0: I call her the, I call her the queen of content. She wrote a book called <laughs> well, doing content. I'll take right, it. I'll take it. But I was
2: going to say, like, it's funny because sometimes I just look at my career and I'm like, oh, I'm such a generalist. Like, there, there's part of me that's like, oh, man, you should just like channel one thing. You know, I, I just really admire people who write, f- let's say, for 10 years and they just have this immense body of work in one domain and sometimes i look at myself and i'm like oh man i haven't written an article in years or like you know my other podcast has been not publishing for for a couple months and i want to bring it back and i'm just like i don't know if you guys both feel this way but i'm like always at odds with myself to figure out what i should be focusing on or like what what really matters
0: well uh naval ravikant has this like i mean it's his big viral tweet thread on how to get rich without getting lucky and he said something in there that never rang fully true to me all the way which is we live in an age of infinite leverage Mm -hmm. and there are two kinds of new capital on top of money that we can now leverage that's code and content and i always was like okay the code thing i get i built a side project one time that like teaches people how to you know build a css game um and i got tons of opportunities so i'm like okay I, i get the code thing but the content thing you honestly were the first person where I was like I get it.
2: <laughs> really? Because you had wow. viral
0: hit after viral hit. I mean, we knew, you came onto our radar like 6 years ago mm-hmm. because we have a content site. We're like she's just, you know, producing bangers left and right and we always wanted to like <laughs> partner with you and like use our distribution channels for that. And then like with that credibility you built this equity that I can only assume was a huge part of like how you got onto like Sampar at the Hustle's radar and how you've gotten onto like, you know, A16Z's radar, et cetera.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's the perfect case study in a way because both of those opportunities and actually every opportunity I've gotten since I started kind of openly publishing came to me. So it's that whole idea of like, as some people say, like increasing your surface area for luck and where it's just, mm-hmm. you put enough stuff out there and actually the... Trends example is Sam literally had read maybe three articles of mine in a row that had gone viral. And so by the mm. third, he was like, I need to hire this person. And he just DM'd go. me on Twitter and he's like, Can I hire you? <laughs> it wasn't even like, a, you know, a, a proper hiring process. I mean, I had to do an assessment and all that eventually. But yeah, I think <laughs> I just in those early days of content i think i did get a little bit lucky but it was those few instances where i saw the power of it where i was like oh my gosh i like i'm getting job offers from this like from writing these articles and i just then really deeply understood the power that it can have just like you're saying with code
1: patrick mckenzie wrote a lot about um how like the best jobs to have are the ones that you can't really apply for yes Like, if you were, like, you know, going to a website, filling out a job application and applying, there's, like, a bunch of other people, like, that's not the best job, right? Even if it's, like, you know, you've spent years in school learning how to be a back-end software engineer, blah, 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 still, there are people at your company, probably, who were hired the same way that Sam hired you because somebody saw proof that they were doing something interesting in the world that was valuable, and they just went straight to that person and probably pay them a boatload more money because that person has so much more leverage, right? They can negotiate their salary, they can basically leave and be irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like with us at Stripe, right? Like Stripe had a big layoff. I don't remember how many people got laid off. But then like we left Stripe and like they're investing in us and we had like an awesome situation that we could negotiate. And so I think that maybe the best thing that writing did for you isn't like you said, it's kind of like a job interview without doing a job interview where like exactly. you have proven to the world what you can do and now you have a ton of leverage and can negotiate your way as if you're like a business owner rather than as if you're an employee.
2: No, totally. And I mean, my first job – Well, actually, I I would say my second job out of college, I was in a role that, let's just say, I was in the same role as other folks on the team, and I was getting paid less than half of what they were making. And it's because I came at it from the exact opposite perspective, where I was like, I need a job. And at that point, I was looking for a remote job. And so I was kind of, all I wanted was just like, can I work remotely or not? And there was not very much supply of that kind of role. And so I was like, I'll take anything. And that is like the worst mindset to come to a not just interview process, but like, as you said, when you're at the negotiation table versus to your point, it's like I've basically done a bunch of job interviews without them actually being interviews. I've created content. I've shown what my ambition is to create a bunch of projects, even when no one's asking. And so now when someone comes to me. I don't need to prove myself. And then now that I'm a little older, know how to negotiate and know a little bit more about, you know, what people should get paid and their worth and all that. But it's just (laughs) a totally different headspace. Like it's kind of wild to compare the two.
1: So this is one of the things I I thought was fascinating about you. Like I think Sam at The Hustle, they spun off this newsletter called Trends. I don't know when it was. It was like 2019. Yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe around-ish. And like you were like leading it. And I just remember like this was kind of the heyday of newsletters where like before this, like, People had newsletters, obviously, for, like, decades. But, like, it wasn't, like, fodder for people in tech to talk about newsletters. It was like, who's, who sort a newsletter? Like, what's the point of that? But then at Trends, you were making, like, I think you grew revenue to, like, millions yep. of dollars. Like, most people who start a blog and a newsletter do not make mil- millions <laughs> of dollars. And I think you're making that from, like, paid subscribers rather than advertisers, yep. too, which I think is pretty unusual. How did that How did that work? Why do, Why did you guys make millions of dollars? Why don't most – bloggers and newsletter writers make millions of dollars.
2: Well, yeah, so we definitely grew to millions. um, And it was all for trends specifically. Unlike the Hustle newsletter, it was all paid subscription revenue. Um, I would say a few things. One, I I don't want to discount the fact that we built a paid newsletter off of a very large free newsletter. I think that's actually what a lot of people do incorrectly these days is they think, oh, well, now that the technology exists with, you know, People are familiar with companies like Substack or Ghost, or there's tons of them out there today that will let you monetize a paid newsletter. However, the second you put a paywall on something, that thing can't grow. Like We just talked about the power of content basically doing work for you while you're sleeping. And so it's not to say paid newsletters are bad. Like We just talked about how trends blew up to millions. However, it was built on a very large audience to start. Right. So, I mean, for any marketers out there, it was at the bottom of the funnel. You still need the top of the funnel, right? If you're starting completely from scratch or even with a small audience, you're just kind of, in my opinion, depending on what your goals are, you're doing yourself a disservice by gating things. But coming back to your question about what did work for trends, we had that big audience. And then I think we understood the audience really well. These were a bunch of people who were interested in business and tech news. Well, what do people who are interested in the news of the day? with business and tech, what do they want to do? Well, they want to build businesses. They want to be ahead of the curve. And so for us, it was just like very obvious and kind of surprising that not many people were doing this. I mean, even the simple framing that many people were talking about what successful businesses had already been built and not what successful businesses can be built tomorrow. Like that's such a simple idea, but like who was really doing that, right? Like all the business tech news was about today, like TechCrunch, right? And so that was the, Very simple idea. I think Glimpse was maybe one of the newsletters that was similar that existed before, Um, but after that, now we've seen like exploding topics. There's tons of newsletters that have kind of like piggybacked on this concept. But even still, I think like what is the TAM for future entrepreneurs? It's massive, and so we just found like a maybe a unique way to cover it. Like we would do these signals which were just like find a bu- find data sources, whether it was Google Trends or SimilarWeb or Jungle Scout. And we would just show, hey, check out this thing that you've maybe never heard of, but is growing like crazy. And that was it.
1: It's not always like obvious how to monetize though, because it's like, yeah. for example, like early stage entrepreneurs have all these problems that are very ephemeral problems. So like oh, I need a co-founder, right? But the second they have a co-founder, they, like, they no longer have that problem and they don't care, right? They don't come back again and again. Like if you need to eat food, you can go to the same restaurant like 100 times a year, right? Or if you need taxes done, like you go to the same accountant every single year, but you connect somebody with a co-founder, it's like, well, these early stage entrepreneurs are like, by definition, like usually broke because they don't have a successful business. Any problem you solve for them, whether it's giving them a business idea or helping them incorporate or helping them meet a co-founder, like they only need it solved once. And so like, it doesn't shock me that not that many people have like figured out how to monetize that group of people.
2: Yeah, and that's something we struggled with because also, I think that group of people sometimes doesn't know what they want. So like we would do these surveys and I, I feel like surveys are mostly useless anyway, but we would still do them. And we'd ask, you know, what kind of content do you want? Do you want more so these like trends you've never heard of for your future business or what we would call maybe more so operator focused content, like you're in the early stages or mid stages of your business and you want to know how to grow it? And all the time, the answer to those surveys, again, which I feel like were inaccurate in terms of like what people say they want versus what they actually want were that people were like we want operator focused content we are operators we want to grow and then we'd create it and i think maybe what part of that reason is to your point courtland it's like one there's so many problems out there and like once you solve it then it's solved but at the same time it's also like really dynamic like there's no right answer to what co-founders should you choose versus there is something that's like kind of just like unique and fun about saying hey here's this subreddit that's blowing up and like maybe you won't use it in your business but it's like it's cool to talk about it at some cocktail party and so we also had a big group of people who were just like you know maybe some product manager at adobe or something like that who just liked i guess feeling like in the know more so than it being practical
1: why do you think people paid like i think they're paying hundreds if not thousands of dollars i don't remember the exact price point just to be a part of the Trends community and be part of the newsletter. Like, I don't think you had in-person events or if I recall. or like We the, had some, but no, it's
2: it's, it's interesting because we always noticed that, like, so yeah, the content was what people would pay for and then they'd stick around for the community. Um, but the community mostly, to your point, was just an online Facebook group. Um, so there was some events, but, you know, a lot of people who subscribe were in, like, small towns somewhere, right? So, like, they wouldn't get access to that anyway. So because we were covering things that they had truly never heard of that put a premium on the content, I think what's tough is like most content is a commodity, right? So like if you're covering like the latest tech story that hundreds if not thousands of other outlets are covering, then it's like, what is your like what premium are you offering or can you charge and for us it was like maybe just the even positioning like if we are able to show you something that will either grow your business or allow you to start a net new business which by the way lots of people did and made me feel bad about myself because i was like why am i <laughs> why am i finding all these trends like i remember like very early on this guy wrote me and he's like oh i just raised a series a based on like this article you wrote and he sent it to me and I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Um, anyway, so people would do this and to, that is valuable, right? That is like the same way if you know certain products are able to say, I save you X hours a week, people are all of a sudden much more willing to spend on it. I think there was a dynamic that we could leverage that maybe others, other types of content just simply wouldn't be able to make the same argument.
1: I think that's one of the, best ways people have found to monetize sort of early stage like aspirational founders is investing and so it's like okay these people haven't done very much yet but like reliably some percentage of them will and so you like the yc model like we'll just get a bunch of them and we'll just invest a little bit in everybody like i've seen the same thing with like our podcast like there's so many founders we talk to and then like two or three years later like if i just invested in every single person who came on indie hackers sure there's a ton of duds but like i would have been investing in like zapier well before they were worth $4 billion. I've I've been invested in like retool after their seed round. And now they're worth billions of dollars. Like it's even just like one or two of these would have blown out, like all the losses out of the water. So hearing you at trends, having the same thing, we're like, wait a minute, like giving people all these ideas and they're like crushing it. Like if you just got like a little piece of a lot of those ideas. It's so hard
2: to tell. I had the same thing with remote work. Like I decided to work remotely in 2016. And that was like basically right when I was out of college and I had such conviction that this was the future. And it was like, I had the conviction, but I didn't have the conviction that other people would have the same conviction. And it just, even when right. you're like early to a trend, you still feel like you're late, which is crazy, right? Like I remember traveling around and being nomadic and being like, oh my God, I'm so late to this. There's thousands of nomads already. And now, of course, it's like, you know, Peter Levels, uh wrote an article or maybe he did a talk years ago where he's like, there's going to be one billion nomads and Everyone was like, that is crazy because you really can't think about, you know, that exponential nature. But I'm sure you guys felt the same way where you're like, I I think indie hackers are going to be a thing. I see the technology changing. I see the financial infrastructure changing. I see the ability for a company like Instagram to sell for a billion dollars in 2012. Well, what's that going to be in 2022, 2032? Like I, I see the trends, but there's still yeah. an aspect of just like but, am, like, why is not no why is no one else <laughs> like, <it? laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. picking up <laughs> on the
2: same things?
1: Yeah, it takes a while. And it happens to me all the time. Because if you're an early adopter, you're probably just hanging out with a bunch of other early adopters. Like, if you want to, like, see, like, what the world is like, like go to the DMV, right? Then you're getting, like, around the average person, you know, and they're not talking about digital nomads and cryptocurrency and all the same shit that we talk about all the time that we think is played out. And so I think it's really hard as a technologist, ironically, to have confidence in, like, where things are going. The other part I think that you guys did, those smart trends, sort of back on that topic, was, like, you had HustleCon. Which, by the way, I think you prepping me for my talk at HustleCon in, like, 2019 was the last time I ever gave a, gave a talk. Oh,
2: really? And probably the last did time I, I ever <laughs> like, will. <give> a talk. <laughs> like, ruin
1: it? No, 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 no. Wait, I, is, that, <laughs> is that a good thing or a bad <laughs> yeah, thing? you got to like,
0: you got I just decided
1: I don't like giving talks and I'm never going to give a talk again. But the one at HustleCon was actually fun. I remember giving it an, like on stage, like kind of in the lobby. But then you guys shut down HustleCon, and mm-hmm. I always thought HustleCon was brilliant because it was just like easy money. You get a bunch of cool, smart people. They come talk on. They do all the content creation for you. Obviously, like your job is still hard. You got to wrangle a bunch of speakers and get like sell all these tickets. But I think you guys are probably making. You have like, to
0: prepare, Cortland? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got to talk to. Sounds me. like a headache. I don't know.
1: I'm a diva. Uh, no. But. I thought you guys were making like high six figures, low seven figures for HustleCon every time you did it. And it seemed like a great way to get like a bunch of people associated with HustleCon. And then you shut it down. Like why shut down something that was lucrative? It felt lucrative anyway.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I feel like I'm not super equipped to talk about this because I joined in that last year of HustleCon and I was I was mostly working on trends. But what I'll say is I think from my understanding of the events business is it's, they were super profitable. Like that. that was, you know, an easy easy is kind of like a funny term here but like an easy way to be like we know if we run this event we know this many people will come we know we can sell tickets for x and have sponsors and make y but i think it's it was like really exhausting for the team and i think there's also a dynamic of like well, do we run? I think I don't know how big HustleCon was when it first started, but it's like, do we run an event that's for like a thousand people and charge two hundred dollars, or do we keep it small? Which I think it was smaller early, in early days, and people felt like it was like really intimate. And I don't know. I think I think it just as the hustle the company blew up, it became more complex, and it was like, should we focus on this, or do we have this like massively scaling newsletter that is just way easier to like kind of crank up? I would ask Sam though. I, I'm sure he's tweeted about it, but I don't actually know why they decided to ultimately shut it down.
1: Yeah. We have the same dilemma here. A friend of mine was telling me like, you guys got to get into events. Like you should, you should host an Indie Hackers conference. It would do so well, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, but it's so much easier to grow a newsletter. <laughs> so <laughs> It's a thousand oh times easier. Oh my God.
2: Running events is tough. Like even we would do some small events for trends and it was just like. Oh man like yeah i'd ra- I'd just rather be in a Google doc <laughs> I'd rather like write something cool
0: <laughs> it sounds it it sounds obviously exhausting, though I also wonder if it's like the way that we're talking about it is almost like pure r o i versus other you know like newsletters or any other kind of content that you can monetize. But I mean, to take Sam and Sean with my first million now, I'm seeing some of their like gigantic events. And to me, it's like, OK, well, on the one hand, I'm sure they, they're making some money on tickets, but there's also like this massive boost to their brand, like just the image mm-hmm. of all these people. It's almost like I almost want to do like two, get as many people as we could as we could have there and then just get like a photo op, make that our marketing material, make it our like our landing page for Instagram or something. Yeah. I don't know.
2: I mean, there's two really important points there. Now, the first is, yes, I would not discount the idea that certain if you do certain things with your content business you can convince people that it's it's something worth paying attention to like there's simple things like i think i've seen you know some podcasters do this i won't say who who will just be like this was the best episode like this you know this (laughs) this person came on they absolutely crushed it this is my favorite episode and they'll do it like every fifth episode um but (laughs) if you look at the you know the tweets and the, the youtube comments it's you know all these people who are like oh my god it's so true like insert person here is the best, like more of them, bring them on, bring them on. And so I've just seen this over and over. There is this like collective, we are like communal people. It's something that shouldn't be discounted. I mean, there's there's a huge spectrum of how much you want to use that. I don't really use those kind of tactics, but I know tons of people who do. But the other thing is like, I think a lot of people think content is a monolith. And I think podcasts in particular are really special in that way because it takes forever to convert people Um, but again this idea of like whether you should gate or not like I unless you're part of iHeartRadio or something like that I think it's like really really rare where you should ever gate a podcast and then I think you know when I was helping to build the HubSpot creator program we were trying to figure out like the payment terms and I don't think I can share everything but the consistent um, I think miscalculation that creators were making were that When in that program, we let, same with My First Million, we let all creators monetize everything outside of the podcast feed itself, meaning they could create merch, meaning they could run events, meaning they could, you know, do probably much more creative things than that. And that is where you make money in podcasts, right? Unless you're selling to Spotify, like, think about, you guys recognize this with My First Million, how much they could make from the RSS feed versus how much they can make with like the whole spectrum of things that has been built with this brand. And the latter is way bigger. Yeah.
1: Right. yeah, totally. And also like the former, like the content itself, like you don't want to gate because that's doubles as your marketing. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? exactly. It's not only like one way to make mm-hmm. money, but it's like, okay, well, if you like gate that, suddenly you're reaching many fewer people who don't hear about you and can't become your customers. So it's. I think I agree with you. And chanting like to your sort of Naval Ravikant fanboying at the beginning, this is another <laughs> thing that he said that I like, which is kind of like he would never charge for his content right like it's one of the most scalable things it's shareable Mm -hmm. it gets out like the reason why anybody knows who he is is not because of like the investments he's made it's because of the content that he's written Mm -hmm. which he just puts out on twitter which has a big fat retweet button and there's no like charge money for this like retweet for five dollars it's like no i want as many people to share this as possible and i'll figure out other ways to be clever and smart about making money
2: exactly and a lot of smart people like naval Have benefited from that thing I said where it's just like it it almost feels like there's an inflection point where you just like you hear Naval enough times and all of a sudden like he becomes this person where you like buy into everything he says right and same thing with My First Million I watched that podcast get built it wasn't big to start just like nothing is big to start and there was just this inflection where all of a sudden it was just like in the zeitgeist where you just saw enough people being like these guys are funny and all of a sudden you're like laughing at everything they say and it's just it, it's fascinating to see these things from the inside sometimes because you're like yeah nothing changed yet everyone's minds changed at one point yeah. it it's just like like a tipping point
1: so what's the deal with you with you at a16z i mean i know when channing and i joined stripe it was really interesting because i always had modest ambitions i'm like i want to be an indie hacker i want to pay my rent and then it's try patrick call was like no 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 no. you guys need to like change the face of entrepreneurship <laughs> i'm like oh that's different <laughs> Did you have a similar thing like that at a16z i mean you're running like podcasts like what's what's the goal there what's your mission
2: yeah so the podcast has run for a long time sonal um Choksi ran it she's amazing she now runs awesome. um web 3 with a16z another podcast that a16z runs so in a way it was interesting because i'm everything else i've done even trends when you think about it i came at right at the beginning of trends so it was different to come into something that had already existed and then also maybe what you're alluding to is like a16z has such a big brand and i'm like how do i how do i not that i am a representative of the brand per se but it's like how do i do this in a way that like you know fills that role but also like represents the brand the way it should and like i don't know it it took i'm like a year in and i feel like i'm just really getting into things i feel like i'm like yeah earning my keep. I I feel like we're finally experimenting a year in and like doing new things. Um, But I think the podcast itself is just like a way for us to like be in the zeitgeist, to be talking about technology, to to be leaders in that space, to be covering the things that, you know, kind of in a similar way to trends, it's like we're not just talking about the things that if we're doing our job right, that everyone else is covering. Mm -hmm. Hopefully the access we have, the intel we have that we can share. Allows us to be ahead of the curve and to be showing like future entrepreneurs, future waves, what they can build.
0: You have a lot of podcast experience between obviously now A sixteen Z. You ran or run your own podcast. Um, I mean, obviously, then you also saw Sam and Sean grow from not superstars into superstars. So, what are some of the like you know big mistakes that people make? Yeah, what do, do you what
1: do what do you know about podcasting now that you think that the average newbie podcaster doesn't know?
2: Well, none of this is going to sound like rocket science, but the number one thing that people get wrong, and I still am figuring out the right way to do this with the A16Z podcast, is many people, and this is a belief, like, I don't know if there's studies or anything on this, but (laughs) many people listen to podcasts, I think, they tell themselves for information, but really, they're looking for entertainment. Mm. Like, even when people go and they describe my first million to a friend, they might be like, oh, they've got the best business ideas, like, they talk to these great entrepreneurs, but really... I mean I love Sam and Sean but if you listen to some episodes like there's not much meat there anymore they're much more leaning into the entertainment which they're incredible yep. entertainers and I'd actually say if you listen to the earlier episodes they've become exponentially better entertainers because they've realized this is what people are looking for and they've you know honed mm-hmm. in that skill. And so mm-hmm. that's this is not like again true for everyone. I think there are some people who really just want to listen to like a deeply researched podcast about technology but i think a lot of the time especially being in tech people will kind of come to the table and be like okay i'm gonna like really deeply research this guest and i'm gonna ask them all the like really technical questions and surface things people haven't heard of but i think the medium of podcasting when you're spending like let's say half an hour to an hour with someone sometimes if you're lex friedman like four hours eight hours (laughs) with folks yeah, like crazy people want some sort of humanity there and so sam and sean do it in like a humorous way lex friedman does it in a very like introspective way uh there's other Mm -hmm. kind of tones that you can bring to a podcast but that's something i'm trying to even figure out it's like how do i marry something on behalf of of an organization. I mean, even think about this is why most corporate podcasts fail, right? Because they're like, let's mm-hmm. just like talk about these subjects. Yeah, and, like, there's no
1: personality. Yeah, there's zero
2: personality. And that's also something I'm figuring out on like, I don't know if either of you find this. When I'm a guest, you can see, I'm like right now I'm getting animated. But when I'm a host, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I I like shrink in for some reason, in a way, like I don't <laughs> know what it is, but I just get more like obsessive of like, let me make sure I'm asking the right questions. Let me make sure mm-hmm. the arc is good. But people yeah. actually don't care about that as much is what I'm It's because, like,
1: being a real person means, like, you know, having your personality out. It's like being a character. But being a host kind of feels wrong to be a character because you feel like you're taking the spotlight off yeah. the guest. You're like, no, I, like, I should, like, you know, shine the spotlight on them. They're the guest. I need to step aside. But that's not what anyone wants. Like, people listen to Howard Stern. He's, like, a character in everything he does because he's such a ridiculous <laughs> human being. But I think in most podcasts, and then Sean told me this, too, when he was – Starting my first million back when it was just him, he was like, oh, all these tech podcasts are started by tech nerds with no personalities. Like, I'm, <laughs> that's not me. I'm gonna I'm gonna come in here and do it different. And he's totally right. Like, it's about entertainment. People want to be entertained. And if people really want to learn, like, I don't think the first thing they do is like pick up their headphones and put on a podcast. Like, they usually start googling things, reading articles, buy a book, right? Talk to people. But if they put their headphones on, if they listen to a podcast, they really just want to pass, you know, the next thirty minutes to an hour.
2: Yep. And the best podcasts, the most successful ones, like marry that true desire for entertainment with some sort of surface level justification that people can tell themselves. The, the illusion like, of
1: usefulness. Yeah, that they were like, oh yeah, of course <laughs> I'll
2: spend two hours a week listening to this person or these people because I'm learning about business trends or I'm learning about you know how to be more productive or whatever. But at the end of the day, how many people, like myself included, there are certain podcasts, let me throw one out there. Andrew Huberman, he's like, you know top the podcast charts. I started listening to his podcast and loved it, and now I can't stomach it because I, it's 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 so dense and it's amazing and I, I can completely understand why people listen to it, but I I feel the need to convince myself to listen to it instead of, mm. you know, other podcasts where I'm like, "Ooh, let me let me download this right so now." I, <laughs> it's like homework. Yeah.
0: I have a I have a a funny Andrew Huberman story that is exactly that. Like, I solved the problem. Oh, you did? Because when you, like you say, when you listen to Andrew Huberman, it's, it's for education, it's not for entertainment. Yeah. But, but it's so dense, right? It's like, you know, it's almost like picking. It's like, you know, do I want to read a new book? Mm-hmm. It's that same kind of like decision fatigue that you have. So I literally hired, I figured out a, a personal assistant who could like take an episode, get the transcription, and then turn it into a Google book. Cause wow. that's like, I love reading yeah, yeah. books and Google books. And, and I can it's
1: like... called Chat GPT. <laughs> Yeah. Well, <laughs> because my, my if not, my you should buy your assistant and hire ChatGPT.
0: But yeah, I think that that says everything that I would feel the need, like the the pain that would have me like go through all those hoops just to like figure out a more digestible format to get it in. And we actually just had Seth Godin on the on the podcast last week. And the first time I heard someone really give an analysis of how to give a good speech, like at a conference, was from him. And he's like, people make mistakes all the time. What they do is they go, oh, I'm going to take, you know, whatever I would write on like a blog post or I'm going to take my, my greatest insights. I'm going to basically create a listicle and then I'm going to go and like inform the hell out of people. And he's like, you, fucking, you, you don't understand what you're doing here, right? You're getting on stage. You want to give people like an experience. Mm-hmm. You want to give them a memorable moment. You want to entertain them. And maybe you'll like give it enough, you know, sort of meat that later on when someone says, what did you go see and why did you see it? They're not going to be like, oh, well, he was really entertaining. Like they'll have like a couple of uh, takeaways. But like that's not the core reason why you're doing it. And yep. podcasting is very similar.
2: Exactly. And I'm that's why podcasts are so hard to grow, right? Because it just takes so much work to get someone invested to that point where they want to come back and they're like oh i'm actually because most of the time you're tuning in for the person so it's like how do i get enough hits with this potential listener where they actually buy into whatever i'm yep. offering and it just it's it's yep. unlike writing it's unlike even video in in ways just in in people's consumption habits as well
1: how much do you prepare for your podcasts on a16z are you doing like an hour of prep like a whole week of prep like
2: it went how much from time you put into it? probably a week to an hour <laughs> because oh, nice. of some of the things we're well talking done. about um we do have someone who helps me do some of the research sometimes but it went from this obsessive oh my gosh i'm gonna have like <laughs> balgy for example came on the pod mm-hmm. i'm gonna read his book i'm going to listen to it just about every interview he's done. I'm not kidding when I say like a 30-page document of questions, um, f- which obviously you don't get. You get through like a page, right? Um, yeah. Right, at most. Exactly. Yeah, I know you get through three questions realistically. <laughs> but I did that, and then I I noticed things in myself. One, just having all that there actually just made me more nervous because I'm like, oh my gosh, like, mm. let me make sure I get to the best stuff. I was like more. <laughs> the opposite of entertaining right because i'm i'm trying to facilitate something instead of actually just like listening to someone and so it's now like I definitely still prep but just in a totally different way
1: this is where we are we're like got an episode another hour and a half who we talking to (laughs) let's do it let's sit down and we prep like right beforehand so then everything's fresh like i used to prep days in advance and then i would like forget most of what I had prepped, and have the sheet of questions that I barely even recognize. Yes. And the same thing as you, I wouldn't get through like ninety percent of it. I'm like, what was the point of like putting all that work in? And then the episode would be like boring and dry because it'd just be asking like question after question. Here's
2: another reason why it gets dry. Did you? I don't know if you found the same thing, but when I prepped, I basically became proficient enough in whatever they're talking about that like I could have been the interviewee. Like, I had yeah. someone <laughs> asked me those answers. questions, I yeah. knew the answers, which just takes all the surprise, all of the like true human interest in what they're saying and so i think that was another reason why i've i've pulled back as well
0: one of the things that we do i mean and we've had to iterate on this a little bit is you know we're trying to lean into being a little bit more entertaining and part of that is being a little bit more spontaneous and so what you're describing when you have someone on you know the answer to the question that you're going to ask is you basically step into acting yes right now you're you're not actually an actor but you are acting and it's like, yeah, there's a, and there's also like a magic of spontaneity. Like, I mean, at the beginning of our episodes, w- we've stopped sharing what we're going to talk about. Like Cortland will be like, I got something. Just just say what's up.
2: <laughs> well, even in this podcast, I was like, are we around five minutes in? I was like, I guess we're live. <laughs> I
1: don't know. Like, yeah, we're live. <laughs> welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about our own shit. <laughs> we'll get to you. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I used to do like a whole like, "Hey, guests, come on. Let me like let me prep them for five minutes. Give them the whole rundown. Here's how it's gonna be. We've got an editor. Her name's Ari. She's gonna make you sound good, etc." But now I don't say any of that. We just like go in. I think it's just better.
2: I agree. I agree.
1: Yeah, let's talk about some of the things you've said because you published like a lot of really cool podcast episodes. You've written some cool stuff. Uh, you did one uh, a podcast on A16Z called "Why Technology Still Matters," and I think you interviewed Mark Andreessen. Mm-hmm. Who's been sort of beating this drum for a long time. I think he wrote this essay in 2020 called like Build or it's something. Time to build. It's just like, come on. Yep. Yeah, it's time to build. Like let's let's get back to like our roots as America. And I think it's just an interesting phenomenon I've seen in media where like if I read about startups or big tech companies or Silicon Valley and something like the New York Times, for example, there's like a 90% chance it's gonna be negative. Or at the very least, like skeptical mm-hmm. and the only optimism I see about tech is coming from media outlets run by people who are in tech or owned by tech companies like Andy hackers or a16 Z's podcast do you think that's true like you see the same trend and like so why do you think that is
2: well there are probably some folks who would paint the people who are propping tech up optimistically as like self-serving where they would say oh you ho- you own you know equity in these companies or like you you basically see upside from this industry succeeding. But from my perspective, and this is true of A16z and elsewhere that I've worked, I truly think, and I, I believe this about myself individually, that people in this industry who have built enough just truly see how these technologies have brought better better things to the world. And like the simplest kind of comparison that I think, you know, some people would be like, oh, life's not this simple is just like, would anyone today in 2023 trade their lives? for almost anyone living in like 1970. And the answer is they wouldn't. And of course a lot has changed since then, but the key thing that has changed is technology. That is what has differentiated anything as simple as like refrigeration to like, I joke about the cold shower trend recently because it's like, you know, the consistent warm hot shower that we all love didn't actually exist that, you know, that long ago, right? So I think it's really easy to apply problems that inevitably do exist in the world and say that they come from technology or they are exacerbated by technology. But I personally just don't hold that view, like even in the slightest. I think there's things that can be fixed in the world and like I don't think technology is perfect, but I I don't think from my experience that it comes from this like self-serving, hey, we just want to make more money perspective. I'm sure people fit that bill, but I think there's a pretty deep underst or misunderstanding. I th- and I think, you know, that maybe is something that should be addressed that many people don't understand technology. Like how many, I think it's like less than 1% of the world knows how to code. A lot of people don't know yeah. how their computers work, how their phones work. And this maybe sounds really negative and I don't mean it to, but just uneducated on the topic and even how these business models work, for example.
1: I think it's just easy to take good things for granted. Yeah, It's part of the human condition, right? It's like we take hot showers for, like every time we go camping i'm like oh shit like, <laughs> yeah you know, what's amazing like a warm shower that's a ama- mate but like when i'm sitting in my apartment for weeks at a time i'm not like counting my blessings that i have warm showers i think it's the same thing with like all technology right it's like so good but we're like the fish who lives in water and doesn't know what water is to some degree we're just so used to it but then there's another part of me that's like even more cynical and conspiratorial or it's like i think the people who are writing with like a such a strong anti-tech vibe Consistently, I mean, obviously, there are problems from tech. Obviously, there are privacy issues and all sorts of, like, other Orwellian, you know, situations that we want to avoid and whatnot. And there's inequality that comes about it. Like, there's real issues. But to see it be so negative, like, I read a blog post the other day. I think Eric Torenberg wrote it. It was about, like, the, mystical, the mythical tech lash. Mm. And you look at, like, consumer sentiment about tech, and it's, like, out of all the industries, whether it's oil or media or education or whatever, like, tech consistently ranks either the middle of the pack or near the top. And so it's like, the average person kind of likes it, but then you look in the media and it's like negative, 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 negative. And it's like, well, like in a way, these industries are very competitive, you know, social media versus media. um, They all monetize the same way, advertising and attention from audiences. And it doesn't strike me as coincidental that the industry that's like the most competitive with tech, you know, happens to have consistent negative opinions about
0: tech. Yeah. I mean, have you heard that? Have you heard that quote from Upton Sinclair? He goes... It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Um, I think
2: there's also a dynamic of like tech has historically been feared, but there is a difference between fear and hatred or like trying to take something down. And I do think there's a dynamic that tech, especially in the last two decades, really since the internet became sizable, is now one of the biggest industries in the world. And I've seen this throughout my career, even like working at companies when something goes from being the underdog to the top dog there is just a very human response to be like i don't like this yeah yeah like screw this <laughs> this thing that i used to root for i no longer care for and so i yeah. think there is definitely a dynamic there and i again like that married with the fact that like imagine that you don't like something but you also don't know why it, it works you don't know mm. what is like getting this flywheel to spin so fast and make all these people Mm -hmm. so much money and that's why you also get these complex dynamics like the same people who are saying like screw jeff bezos are tweeting on their iphone with prime (laughs) subscriptions right like who all subscribe (laughs) to netflix and like i i understand the concerns and like you said Cortland, there are there are things to consider as these technologies get bigger they are more impactful therefore like things that maybe didn't matter as much now do matter more because they're touching billions of people. But that does not mean technology is bad. And I still quite frankly stand by this idea that technology is a tool. And so like, Mm -hmm. even though it's more complex, like if you were to apply the thinking that many people have to other tools, like traditional tools, it wouldn't stand. And I think, yeah, maybe this is also where education comes into play. Mm -hmm. Because even if you take the truly pessimistic view that technology is bad, that still can't quite be squared with the fact that, yeah, technology progresses forward regardless. And so yeah. the same questions happening around AI right now are very complex and there's a lot of great questions being asked, but a lot of them are being asked in the frame of like a, drawing some sort of arbitrary stop line. And I just, we put the G <laughs> yeah, the it bottle. just, right. Like exactly. that has never yeah. historically happened. Maybe some people are mm-hmm. comparing elements of it to nuclear but our best way to solve our biggest problems have has always been technology and that always creates some new problems but that those are always also solved with mm-hmm. technology and yep. i think it's actually really inspiring especially right. at a16z because i'm covering you know what trends we're talking about again like some tiny subreddit here or like some mm-hmm. business that someone can start you know that makes a couple million dollars but at a16z i get to see just massive change and like there are certain industries that like it's funny, um, are, do you guys still live in SF or?
1: I'm in Seattle okay. now and Channing yeah, is in, in, Brooklyn. I'm in New York.
2: I saw this tweet, which I've noticed on the ground because I'm now in SF as well, um, from Ryan Peterson who were like, all these people were complaining mm. that autonomous vehicles, like they're coming, they're coming, they're never coming. And now that they're here, because they're on the ground, people don't there, yeah. care at all. Yeah. People aren't talking yeah. about it, they're not talking about like, <laughs> but that's an example of like, you know, second, third order effects. If you do have autonomous vehicles on the ground, The the dynamics of ride sharing change, the dynamics of city design can change. You know, there are a lot of them or actually I think all of them are electric or hybrid. And so like technology is the solution, right? Like it's not, as you said, putting the genie back in the bottle. And I do understand how someone can get to the conclusion that technology is bad or some forms of technology are bad. But even on that note, I think it's really concerning when people view technology as a monolith because it's mm-hmm. just so clearly not.
1: Yeah, you did an episode on um, shit you don't learn in schools called the AI debate, where do you sit? And it reminds me of like one of my favorite authors, Yuval Noah Harari, mm-hmm. who I respect immensely. He wrote the book Sapiens, which is like a very popular book among Silicon Valley types. He said the first regulation we should do for AI is to make it mandatory for AI to disclose that it is AI. He's like very freaked out about this, and he's not the only one. There's a lot of like very intelligent people who I would say are also like pro tech to some degree who are like very much in this, like let's put the genie back in the bottle camp. What do you think about this particular issue of technology? Like, I mean, there's obviously some dangers for AI, right? It's like, I'm writing AI right now to like help me moderate the indie hackers forum and figure out which posts are good versus which ones are bad. But like, I could very easily spin up like, you know, an AI that spams people and doesn't get caught. Mm -hmm. It's like trivially easy to do this. Um, I think it's unrealistic to put it back in the bottle. A lot of the things that we think are weird 10, 20 years from now would just be commonplace. But I think it's almost guaranteed. If something is so useful that it spreads, that it goes from being weird to mainstream. Yeah. Like online dating. Early 2000s, if you're on an online dating website, you were weird. That was strange. Now pretty much everybody's got like a Tinder or Bumble account if they're single and it's like the most common way to meet somebody and it's crazy. Even when I was in middle school, if you were like online chatting with people, that was weird. Now, like, the most, like, famous, like, models have, like, huge Instagram accounts and spend half their time DMing people. Even before that, if you wore a Walkman headset... That was weird and antisocial. Why would you put something on your ears in public that's super antisocial? Like, now that's just like commonplace. Even before that, like, there's an article in the 1800s about bicycles being such a menace and such a strange exactly. thing. Exactly. Pe- there's bicycle people face. Jogging. Mark
2: talks about yeah. this. So they're like, oh, these people have bicycle face. And really, it was just like women who were tired, <laughs> but they wanted to like go back home. <laughs> bicycle face. <laughs> yeah. It's like actually, and there's like red flag laws where like because they didn't like the cars, they actually had a horse like walk alongside them with a red flag. And like, you know, that's why I do think studying history and especially technology throughout Mm -hmm. history is fascinating. AI is interesting because there is this like, as some people say, extinction level event, which I don't, which I guess there are a few parallels. Like again, that's why people compare it to nuclear, but Mm -hmm. I think humans are incredibly dynamic, but also unpredictable. And the example I gave is technology has been better than humans at chess for a very Mm -hmm. long time. What was it? 1997, which was the famous deep blue match. Mm -hmm. And The point is what... So we're now like over 25 years past that. And guess what? People play more chess than ever. People watch more chess than ever. People who play chess and make money also make more money than ever. And so (laughs) I don't think this is like... The pushback was like, oh, chess is like for entertainment or it's a game. My point is that the job market changes. New jobs appear. Like No one would have ever said chess streamer was a job. And I think... A lot of people are like, yeah, well, I don't I don't know because AI touches every white collar role out there. But I just think mm. the things that people will find interesting and want to pay money for are just going to be totally different and yeah, I think just I think we just have to have like enough humility to be like we don't know how this is going to bake out.
1: You did another episode on A16Z on this topic called it was 2023 Big Ideas in Technology. And I think, like, the pitch for it was, it was, like, a two-part episode. Mm-hmm. And you just, like, asked most of the partners at A16Z, of which there are apparently dozens. There's a lot, yeah. Uh, <laughs> spotlight, one big idea in, that startups in their field could basically tackle. Mm-hmm. And one of the partners, Ann Lee Skates, yes. whose husband, Spencer Skates, I interviewed on the oh, podcast. Great. And also would have loved to invest in his company back when I interviewed him. because <laughs> It's worth way more now. Um, Amplitude. She talked about this idea of the third place. Channing, yes. are you familiar with this? Nope, Steph, I know you are. So there's this guy back in the past. His name is Ray Oldenburg. So he literally as old in his name. <laughs> I think he died last year. he's like 90. But he was like a, an urban sociologist. And he wrote a lot about the importance of any society, like a well-functioning society, to have like a third place that you go to to gather. So the first place he recognized, and this is like in the 80s. So he was like spot on because it's even more extreme today. He's like, we're spending an increasing amount of time just isolated at home. And just like locked away in their own like little cubes, whereas everybody else, you know, is in their own cube in their own apartment, their own home, we're all separate. Second place is work, right? You go wake up at 8, drive to the office, come back. That's our number two place, which like today is like less important because of remote work. So now like the first place is even more. And the third place is like these social gathering places like coffee shops and cafes and beer gardens and just places where people can like just like sit and talk. And everybody has kind of the same status. Nobody's on a podium lecturing everybody else. It's just a collection of peers, no matter who you are, where you come from. And he talked about the importance of the third place. And so I think Annalise Skate's point on your podcast and what she wrote about was like, what role does technology have here? Like, are there digital gathering places where we can sort of reclaim and like get this third place back? Mm -hmm. Which makes me think of, um, I don't know if you were on Clubhouse when it was big in 2020, but it makes me think of Clubhouse, where it was like the pandemic hit, everybody was stuck inside, and I would just join a Clubhouse room and it would be like, walking to a coffee shop that was super social. Everybody's talking about something. You can listen to the audience. You could pop on. It was like really fun. And then the second the pandemic was over, Clubhouse's numbers just like plummeted. Just like Ear! and it turned out like nobody wants to sit inside on their iPad talking to people. They want to go out in the real world and talk to people instead. So uh Steph, I wondered what you thought about that episode. If any ideas stuck out to you or if you had thoughts about that particular idea. Because that's the one that resonated with me is me. It's almost like the, the way I'm the most anti-tech was like, no, I don't think we want technology to solve this problem. I think we want more brick-and-mortar places. Like, the answer is to create more third places rather than to replace them with more alone time at
2: home. Yeah, I have so many thoughts here because I th- when you're nomadic, you see a totally different world because you're in other countries, but there's also this totally different social dynamic, right? Because you're not going to an office every day, um, but you're around a bunch of other people who have a similar interest of often working online. Um, and so... In that case, it was like my first exposure to the idea that actually like where you meet your closest friends doesn't have to be at work, but there still has to be a common thread of interest, right? And so that's why if you just like randomly, I don't know, like bring a bunch of people together in a cafe, you probably won't really meet people of interest but what we would do is like you know the co-working spaces would run events or we would do these like we called it hackagoo like these little 10 to 20 of us who built online projects indie hackers would go yeah. and we'd do this like hackathon it was called hackath hackagoo because it was hackathon changu mm-hmm. and those were some of my closest friends and still to this day a lot of us like we have this ongoing chat now that we're all distributed um but that was an example of where to your point like i do think they're needs to be somewhat of it to be grounded in physical space but the technology mm. is an enabler. and one of the areas that I still can't believe there's not better technology solutions is like when you go to a, a, a meetup or even a conference and they bring people together and then they awkwardly they're like, okay go into groups of six or like go he- talk to people at right. your table and I'm like, yeah, the easiest thing ever would be an app where you just ask people to like answer like three or four qu- multiple choice questions, You know, like, what are you looking to solve in your business? That's a really boring one, but they could be way more dynamic. But then Mm -hmm. they can also, based on your responses, like prompt you with questions. And Mm -hmm. they don't have to be business related. It could just be like, oh, I know based on your profile that like a third of you live in the Midwest or I don't know, like, or that you like eight people really like pickles. Like what's up with that? And, And so I think technology has a place in this idea of like bringing people together. But I do think vetted and it doesn't need to be like application based but just like vetted places where there's a common thread because think about the third places of the past like the, you met people at church and you bonded with them because you had the shared religion you met people and bonded with people at work because you had a shared interest in like a specific industry or skill and then now it's like the question mark right it's like what do you bond with people over
0: yeah i don't want to show this guy's product I, I already uh gave a naval quote earlier, but he (laughs) just released some new app called AirChat. And it's some kind of like a new social media thing. I really haven't looked at it hardly at all. But I saw on Twitter, he like did his release tweets about it. And in selling, like, you know, sort of making those tweets, he made a couple of points that I'm like, I don't know anything about your product, but you're making a lot of good points here about social media. And he goes, social media isn't social, it's performative. Mm -hmm. He's like, you know, where's the chit chat? Where's the banter, the easy laughter? And instantly a light bulb came out of my head that like if you think about all of the social media that we have now we've been talking about technology and how it enables and how it amplifies all these things that we care about like instagram you're like so many people are sad because even the ones that are have big followings because it's all a big performance it's all like trying to get upvote, trying to get seen Mm -hmm. trying to get people to approve of you twitter is the same thing who's the smartest person in the room um i don't even know what's going on with facebook i quit that thing like (laughs) you know 10 years ago but um Yeah, like that. Like, if anything, I'm like, I'm really fat. I'm really interested in like, what would a product look like? I mean, say if you even if you get rid of like the real life component, what just what an online social media um, platform that really did feel social, felt like you're hanging out with your buds, right? Where you feel like you know you're you're relaxing, but you're also you have shared interests. What would that look like? I thought Clubhouse felt like that.
1: It felt like it was really easy. You didn't have to be like all dressed up and look good like you're on a Zoom call. You could just pick up on it. The audio was really crisp and clear and fast. Um, it felt like like I would almost never call any of my friends today without like giving them a heads up. Like, Steph, if I wanted to call you, I'd be like, hey, do you want to have a yeah. call <laughs> Thursday at 6? You know? But, yeah. like, on Clubhouse, it was like you just, like, click someone's name. And it, it didn't feel intrusive to call somebody on Clubhouse. It just felt like you ping them. And if they want to join, they join. And So it kind of, like, brought back this magic of calling, which has, like, been lost. Like, calling without scheduling. And it was just, like, really nice.
2: Why do you think it's fallen off, though. I'm I'm genuinely curious.
1: I genuinely think that it, it filled a hole. It filled a gap that people needed. Like, the same way, like, when you're, like, you'll eat more food when you're hungry. Like, you go to bed when you're sleepy. Like, people wanted to socialize on online when they didn't have these third gathering places in the world because of the pandemic. And it was really cool. And then, like, the pandemic ended and it's just like, okay, well, like, I don't need this anymore, right? Like, I can go outside and, like, meet up with my friends without wearing a mask and just talk. And, like, once you have that, like, the allure of Clubhouse just wasn't as great. Because it's kind of solving the same problem, but like, and I think in a way that technology just isn't quite there yet. There isn't anything I would rather talk to somebody on compared to talking to somebody in person. Yeah. And I don't know if there ever will be, but we're definitely not there yet. Like I have a weekly kind of standing, like we call it pretzel night with my friends in Seattle. We just go to a place that serves like awesome, warm, soft pretzels and like mustard and cheese and just eat pretzels and talk about nothing. Literally talk about nothing. And my friends and I barely have anything in common either. So it's like maybe Belize's this point of like oh you need to have something like strong in common like the main point is just the conversation and the fact that we like each other as people because i think sometimes you have things in common like those things can change right like oh mm-hmm. like i'm not into startups anymore and like what you don't don't talk to your friends anymore like if that's all you talk about or um i also found the same thing that you found stuff like when you're digital nomading a lot of my professional friends like we just don't live in the same area anymore like we go where our jobs take us to some degree and we're just like very mobile as a class of people, and so like it's hard to have those in-person connections. And so I think people always crave those in-person connections, even if you're talking a lot online. Like it's easy to feel lonely, and I don't think anything's going to replace that unless it's like really, really good at getting all the benefits.
0: of Well, conversation. one question though for you, Cortland Pretzel Night: how uh, how big are you trying to grow Pretzel Night? Are you been trying <laughs> to like expand Pretzel Night? Fifteen million. We want an invite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but I it's on like 3 is
1: 3 core people at pretzel night and then like at any given pretzel night there might be 6 or 7 cuz random people stop by. They hear there's about that pretzel we're friends night in the coffee shop. Yeah, they hear, about, yeah, pretzel they hear about pretzel night, the coffee shop we do it and then, like took photos of us and put it on the wall. Like we have friends in the in the local town in North Bend, Washington who just like happen to pop in. Well, maybe like, that's guy one of joins the our pretzel night. He's his name is Richard, he's like 75. I've nothing <laughs> in common with Richard, but I'll eat a pretzel with him.
0: Well, was uh, Richard just like hanging out at the place and you're just like Yeah. He you just, just sort of place. stumbled over and no, one, pulled up no a chair. one wanted to be rude. Yeah. Well I was gonna say, I mean, this is a, a kind of in a serious note. One of the things that Clubhouse did is maybe it had that element, right? It had like the the good audio, like the the good vibes, like you feel like you you know, there's not all that much formality getting in the way of saying stuff. But the form factor of it was still kind of like you know hey you're a creator grow your room grow your brand and everyone wanted to like build like I mean every every room that I that I joined it felt like they were trying to expand those are the right? rooms
1: that you were joining yeah and like I think those were the ambitious ones some of them were like and like statistically those are the ones you're gonna hear about right the ones that have ambitious growth goals will therefore reach the most people therefore you will be more likely to see them but there are a lot of rooms on random topics that have nothing to do with tech and there are a lot of rooms that were just friends talking and you just didn't join those because you're just like meh you know, I occasionally popped into them and I was like, this isn't for me. And I left, but they're a ton. I think it's possible for something like that to exist. But to answer your question, Steph, I just don't think it filled the need as well as real life meets. Well, did. It, and there's a, a gap. It
2: reminds me of, you know, in most industries, like clothing is the maybe most obvious version of this. Things just really bifurcate, right? It's like the messy middle where people lose, right? It's like the luxury brands do really well. And then the super cheap Walmart clothes also do really well. And I think there's probably an element of this on social too, where it's like, if you want something where it's truly, you feel vulnerable and it feels real and you feel like there's a shared humanity and you're laughing, and it doesn't matter if he's 75 and you're, you know, half his age or like even less, you can bond because you're just like eating pretzels, right? Like, that's awesome. That's it. But then there's a version that I think is also equally human, which is to chase like something highly curated. I think one of the things that, um people argue about technology is this idea that like maybe that it surfaces like the worst parts of humans like again this idea that you know like instagram is so yeah. highly curated and it is like mm-hmm. I, honestly these days if you watch a video skit on instagram like a reel mm. chances are it's fake even if it's if it looks real right and so mm-hmm. yeah may not be ai generated but like this is where you know this whole idea of like what real or what authentic even means is very dynamic these days. But point Mm. is actually, I think maybe I heard someone say like technology is more like a mirror versus a tool, but Mm. it's like reflecting what we want and the apps that get the most users are serving them in some way that they're coming back like a fun house mirror. Yeah. The idea is that we might not like what the mirror shows us, but like people come back to this like highly curated content. So again, maybe it's like a, bifurcation where it's the things that also su- succeed like are on one end yeah. or the other
1: i think there's a partner i think at a16z who wrote about how like you want if you're starting a social company you want it to reflect one of the seven deadly sins yeah right? it's got to be that. like a, <laughs> appeal to like greed or gluttony or pride or lust or something for people to to hook on to and so it's like not only are we reflecting things that might be the worst in us but like we're consciously aware of this as a species And using it (laughs) as part of our business strategy to create (laughs) some of the hit apps. Um, Anyway, Steph, we've kept you more than long enough. You've been so gracious as a guest. I love going through your story, different things you've learned, and then just chatting about tech with you. So thanks a ton for coming on. I've got one more question that I always sort of end with, which is you've had this huge career where you've gone from indie hacker to... Writer and a leader and a podcaster and like who knows what the future holds? What do you what do you think any hackers can learn? What's something you think they should take away? It doesn't have to be like the most important lesson But just something that's like, you know particular to you and your perspectives
2: Yeah, I think that there's just so much advice these days about like, you know write Twitter threads these ways or like This is how you sh- even this like we we're talking about how you might grow a podcast or like I just see so many people on Twitter especially because that's where I hang out just like chasing this idea of building an audience And sometimes it works um but even sometimes the people who i see who follow that advice where it like quote unquote works i just i don't know maybe they're happy but i'm just like (laughs) are you happy writing these like templated threads all day and like also do any of your followers like actually you know could could you fill a stadium of Mm -hmm. people the way like the my first million guys can you know could you even sell any sort of product Not that that's the goal, but the point is, I feel like because it has now become such a popular and also clearly potentially lucrative idea to build an audience, there's just like so much of this like chasing. But the people who I know are who have been successful and even my story early on was just like I had something to say and I did that because I like lived an interesting life. Like I I was nomadic at the time. I had like met people like Peter Levels in Bali and saw that they were building these products. So I taught myself how to code. And I like, especially in the age of, by the way, AI-generated content, what's going to stand out is story. And I think there's an element that people really underestimate around story. And like, I I think Taylor Swift's actually a great example of this. She's selling out the most lucrative tour, I think, ever currently. And Mm. people listen to her music, yeah, because her music's good, but also because they've grown up with her, but also because she writes about her life so every song there's all this like fan fiction or is it about this person? It's about this person and it's like what does she mean by this lyric and that's just an example of where again like because it's going to be easier than ever to create content like you said it's not it's not like a revelation but i would just encourage people to be like what am i really excited about like what do i actually have an interesting take on like what skill have i always wanted to learn and like could i bring people into that fold um, Because I just think, you know, maybe one of the biggest themes that we've talked about today is just like this humanity. I just, I I don't mean it in some sort of special way, but just this idea that like Mm -hmm. humans want to connect with other humans. Um, And I think a lot of potential creators really miss that.
1: I love that. Be yourself. Be authentic. something (laughs) we've talked about a lot today. And,
2: And
1: don't become yet another Twitter thread boy just because some Twitter thread told you to thanks for being part of this show for round two hopefully we'll get you on round three sometime later this year next year anytime can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to you got multiple podcasts i think you're still doing your blog where can they find more stuff? yeah
2: so a16z podcast we've got some cool stuff hopefully entertaining stuff we have an episode uh where i'm in a self-driving car so that'll be fun um and then my other podcast is the shit you don't learn in school that one i record with my husband so hopefully it's more banter uh, than the A16Z pod. Uh-huh. And then, yeah, my website stephsmith.io and I'm on Twitter at stephsmithio.
1: All right, thanks again, Steph.